This time two years ago, the UK was in the middle of a cold snap. Much of the country was blanketed in snow. In Aberdeenshire, temperatures hit minus 10. The weather's certainly been causing disruption over the past couple of days, and we are not out of the woods yet. More ice, more snow, and strong winds. It was a tough winter for the NHS too. The British Red Cross took the unprecedented step of declaring a humanitarian crisis in our hospitals. Many frail and elderly patients spent their January waiting on trolleys in corridors. In a hospital in Worcestershire, a woman died of a heart attack after waiting for 35 hours. Nurses and doctors warned that this was the new normal. I have to say to him that I think we've all seen humanitarian crises around the world. And to use that description of a national health service was irresponsible and overblown. This crisis is nothing new. This crisis has been there year on, year out. It gets worse every winter. We're at breaking point. It, it can't carry on. We've had a milder winter this year, but is the same true for the health service? Two weeks ago, the Prime Minister announced a new 10-year plan for the NHS in England, promising world-class care. The NHS is the public's priority, and so I've made it my number one spending priority. But critics say nothing much has changed, and that the NHS will continue to lurch from crisis to crisis. Few will argue with the aspiration to improve treatment, but with vacancies in almost every NHS specialism, unions wonder where the staff will come from to deliver it. It's the Weekly Economics Podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, and this week I'm asking, is the new NHS plan any good? Winter may have been late arriving this year, but it may well have saved its best, or should that be worst, to last. I'm really pleased to have a fantastic group of guests to help me to take the NHS's temperature today. First, we've got Daniel Button, senior researcher at the New Economics Foundation, focusing especially on health inequalities. Hi, thanks for having me. You're so welcome. Uh, I'm also joined by nurse and campaigner Danielle Tiplady. Tiplady? Tiplady. 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 Yeah? Great. <laughs> nice. Nailed it. Not Tiplady. That would be weird. Welcome, Danielle. Could you tell us briefly about what kind of nursing you do? Um, I work in the NHS uh, in intensive care at the moment in a hospital in London. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, and last but certainly not least, Diarmuid MacDonald is the lead organiser at Just Treatment. Diarmuid, we're going to get into it more later, but could you briefly tell us uh, what Just Treatment is all about? Sure. Hi, Aisha. Um, Hi. So uh, I guess Just Treatment works with patients who've been personally affected by the consequences of the ever higher drug prices we're seeing, um, where the NHS can't afford the prices being charged by drug companies. And so Often cancer patients, hepatitis patients, cystic fibrosis patients can't get the drugs that could save their lives. And we work with them, organise them to lead campaigns, basically pushing for reform and pushing for a more equitable way of getting access to medicines. Amazing. Such an all-star lineup. Very excited to dive in. So we're going to start with the new NHS 10-year plan and talk about that for a little bit. But then we're going to look at two economic aspects of health and healthcare that don't get as much attention as they should. So issues that you might think don't affect people in the UK as much as they might in the US, for example. One of those is the health gap between rich and poor. And then we'll chat about the Just Treatment campaign and access to treatments. Just a quick note before we start. 
Health policy is a devolved issue. So when we talk about the new NHS plan, we're just talking about England. But hopefully we can also get into issues that affect the whole of the UK. So we're going to kick off with you, Daniel Button. Last June, we did a whole episode celebrating the NHS's 70th birthday, looking at the state of NHS and social care, the strategy and structure and some of the problems with all that. I'm sure that you've listened to that and you know it word for word Mm -hmm. and you'll be able to speak to it with authority. But if listeners want a a kind of real in-depth look at the NHS, we'll put a link to that podcast in the description for this episode. But in short, we covered three big problems. So one of them was not enough money and staff, especially in social care. Another one was lots of good talk about prevention and public health, but not enough action on it. And then the final one was the NHS was still suffering from the fallout of a big government reorganisation in 2012. So could you just outline for us, does the new 10-year plan address any of those key points? So there are some positives in the plan, um, specifically around the second point you just mentioned, so the prevention and public health. So firstly, the plan does acknowledge some of the more worrying health trends that have been emerging in official statistics over the last few years, um, which were pretty much ignored by um, the Department of Health under um, Jeremy Hunt. And what Um, are some of those trends? So uh, we've come to expect life expectancy to increase in the UK year on year, normally by about a quarter of a year each year. And that's increased pretty much continuously for the last century. Last year, some official statistics revealed that that has actually started to stall for the first time pretty much in a century. Um, And then on top of that, um, health inequalities, so the gap in health outcomes between um, rich and poor, um, have also started to uh, widen after a period of narrowing up until 2010. Mm -hmm. So what does the plan do about this kind of stuff? So... While it does acknowledge these health inequalities, which is positive, uh, I think some of the action proposed in the plan is perhaps not the correct response. So a lot of the plan focuses on health services and putting more money into um, primary and community care. And it talks quite a lot about um, individual behaviours. So it talks about how the NHS can support people to adopt more healthy behaviours and sort of curb more unhealthy behaviours. Mm. So it's very much kind of focused on the individual rather than the, the, the system of yeah. support. So when we talk about health and health inequalities in the UK, the debate quite often gets restricted firstly to healthcare, so people start talking about NHS services. Um, and then if it does move beyond that, um, people start talking about health behaviours. But we know from decades of research that health inequalities are not caused just by health services, so access to quality um, health services or people's behaviours. They're influenced by the conditions in which we live. Mm-hmm. The criticism that we would have of the current NHS plan is that it falls into the trap of just talking about health services and health behaviours, and then it ignores all those wider factors which... Um, which have been found to be the sort of primary primary cause of health inequality, so there's wider conditions of, of health. Okay, so kind of being too focused on looking at things in isolation rather than the whole system. That's it, yeah. Okay. Uh, Danielle, um, you're a nurse and a campaigner. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about what that's like? What's it like to be at the front line of the NHS these days? And does the new plan give you any hope that things are going to get better? It's incredibly challenging for staff in the NHS at the moment. All year round, we're under significant pressure to to deliver services to patients and to deliver the care that they need. And we're often unable to give it because we don't have the staff. 
We don't have the student nurses coming through to train as nurses to work alongside us because the government cut the bursary, so there's less people applying to be nurses. Um, uh, the morale is awful. People are very unhappy and they feel very downtrodden because after eight years of cuts to everything, not only nursing, but to the NHS, it's made it very, very difficult. And people feel really guilty as well for the patients because we're not able to give them what they need. And patients have to wait longer for things. They have to wait for operations and wait in pain and be turned away time and time again. It's not easy working in the NHS anymore. Mm. Um, although I say this, it is a pleasure and a joy to do what I do. It's not all bad. The plan, will it change any of that? No. The plan is lacks any workforce planning, which is what we need at the moment. We have 42,000 nursing vacancies. We have mm. 47,000 EU nurses that have left since Brexit. We have one third of nurses heading into retirement in the next few years. Like this is a perfect storm mm -hmm. and it's about to hit crisis point. We've already seen services closing. A chemotherapy unit in London is closed because there's no nurses to deliver the services, meaning patients have to travel over an hour, some people, to go and get their chemotherapy now when they're not very well. This plan is empty and meaningless to me because it simply doesn't address the workforce. And the workforce is the most important thing because without the workforce, you won't have any NHS and people won't be looked after. Thank you. Could I jump in on that yeah. just to say, I think one of the things that's really important, and like Danielle says it really clearly, like the cuts that we've seen in the NHS over the last 10 years have been really hugely detrimental. And it's really important to remember that, you know, this has been... Uh, trumpeted as uh, a plan built on the back of a new increased investment in the NHS, but the extra money is still lower than the historical average mm -hmm. of investment in the NHS. So um, we're still under-investing in the health service, um, and it also doesn't really touch upon, in fact, it potentially could exacerbate the other thing that I think people are really worried about the NHS, which is uh, increasing privatisation that we've seen mm -hmm. since the reforms that Andrew Lansley introduced. One of the really positive things around building greater integration between uh, primary health care and hospital care and social care is a good idea, but the way it's being structured actually could make it easier for larger chunks of the NHS to be taken over by the private sector, which is a real potential threat to the future of the service. Mm. All right, Daniel, I'm going to bring you back in. I wanted to talk a bit more broadly about health as an economic issue mm -hmm. um, or as a class issue. So the life expectancy gap between rich and poor in England, as you said, has been widening. Um, There's one example the BBC reported last July from England's most unequal town, Stockton-on-Tees. Apparently people living in wealthier areas can expect to live as much as 18 years longer than people in the most deprived parts of the same town. And obviously that's really shocking. Um, so why do you think that's happening? Yeah, so as you said, um, the economic reasons behind people's ill health are really important. Um, and some of the patterns in the UK are really, really stark. Um, your health in the UK is really determined by who you are, so your socioeconomic status. Um, so we know that poverty is really detrimental to health. It's much harder to eat healthily if you don't have enough money for a healthy diet. The stress of living on low income affects both your mental and physical health. And some of the conditions which result from, from living in poverty, such as poor housing, also have a direct impact on our health through things like, you know, cold and damp conditions which affect our health quite directly as well. 
So it's kind of like what you were saying about the plan. We need to be looking at all these different factors. So, you know, people often talk, as you say, about diet and about kind of alcohol and smoking, for example, but don't talk about things like housing and jobs when it comes to healthcare. Yeah. Um, the government has a tendency to sort of blame the victim and the mm. people that are at the sharp end of poor economic policies rather than facing up to those facts. Mm. Danielle, I was wondering whether you had any experience of what these kind of health inequalities look like in your work. Do they show up in the people that you work with? Do you see kind of lots of disparity between different types of people and their experiences? Previously, definitely, I've seen people who um, they work in in multiple jobs sometimes and even to have the time to go and access some kind of healthcare provision they just simply don't have the time or if they do get in a prescription it costs nearly 10 pounds and when you're on a low wage and you've got children to feed and you're the only parent 10 pounds on a prescription or 10 pounds giving your children warm food or heating Mm -hmm. in the house like you're going to prioritize that and it's very difficult for people and people worry about like the stigma of of their like poverty as well and mm-hmm. they worry about accessing services if they're going to get into trouble and things like that as well yeah that's one of the things that i've come across in people that i work with in particular um, migrants and people who have precarious immigration status often talk about being really reluctant to engage with the nhs because of fear around that is that something that you've experienced definitely um people are terrified now because the law changed and um, people who aren't from the UK we're meant to ask them for their passports Mm. because they get charged and people are very very reluctant to go because they can't afford it and they're frightened that they're either going to end up with a massive bill or they're going to end up getting into trouble with it Mm. Um, and I think that's quite common now. Yeah what changes do you think that we need to see to narrow the health gap? The government and I think this is highly unlikely they would do this, but they need to end austerity. We need them to invest not only in the NHS, but in housing, Mm -hmm. in giving people opportunities to go to university with education, in public health. Like, we need to... Transport. In -hmm. transport. We need to invest in infrastructure, people's mental health as well. Like, there's a huge mental health crisis. Yeah, so as you say, you're really seeing the kind of collective impact of all these different cuts and government policies kind of funneled through a a health lens. Um, Diarmid, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think Danielle totally nailed it. I think um, the way that we fix the health inequalities and the health gap is about, um, I guess, like the NHS in a sense up until now has been about fixing problems that uh, people have with their health an awful lot of what needs to change is before people start turning up on the NHS's doorstep and that's why it's about every other government department and what they're doing. I'd say one way that that translates into our issues around access to medicines is or how it manifests itself is we're seeing increasing numbers of new medicines that are unavailable despite the fact that they're effective they're unavailable in the NHS due to the very high price and that's translating into people like going out and crowdfunding in order to play for their cancer treatment. Um, why, why, are those, why are they so expensive? Because of the companies that make them? The reason that drug prices are high, and this is a big discussion, is mostly down to the fact that drug companies have got monopolies, which mean that nobody else can sell the drug that they're producing. And during that monopoly period, they basically have the freedom to price the drug at whatever level they want. That is, in theory, a reward that they've been granted to acknowledge the innovation that they've invested to develop that new medicine. But, you know, 
just treatment, we're really critical of lots of the assumptions that go into that theory of how innovation works within within medicine and, and would totally disagree that the prices of the drugs reflect in any realistic way the amount of investment that's made or, or it being a fair reward. Um, so we end up all the time with drugs which are just not justified. The pricing of those medicines is hundreds if not thousands of times more than it costs to manufacture that drug. And so that translates into the NHS having to say, well, this drug would be great if we if it was priced in a fair and affordable way for our health service, but it's not. And we're going to have to unfortunately deny patients access to it because we've got a hugely stretched budget. If you're having to fundraise to pay for treatment, certain people have got more ability to do that. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're wealthier, if you've got a strong community around you, if you're um, if you're well educated, it's much easier for you to go about crowdfunding and fundraising or even like borrowing from friends and family to pay for treatment than you do if you're a lower socioeconomic group and you don't have access to those resources. And so the NHS was designed to prevent that kind of inequity happening. And at the moment, some of the failings we're seeing, both in the terms of the resourcing and the structure of the NHS and in the fundamental flaws within the pharmaceutical sector, we're seeing that becoming an ever more apparent problem despite the existence of the NHS. And is this a new problem or is this something that you see getting worse in recent times? Yeah, we're definitely seeing an increase in this as a problem. The historic challenge around access to affordable medicines was basically a problem for the developing world. I worked on HIV for many years and we fought from the late 90s and through the early 2000s to ensure that everybody had equal access to HIV treatment around the world. And that was a massive fight to ensure that we could get generic, so quality copies of patented medicines. We could get generic medicines available as quickly as possible. And so it was really seen as like, how do we get fair access to medicines across Africa and Asia and Latin? America. What we're seeing right now is that the US, the UK, right the way across the European Union, even Australia and Japan, they're struggling to understand how they can continue within their health services to afford the ever escalating drug prices that they're seeing. And so this is a political issue right the way around the world. Mm. Other than kind of like the complete social overhaul that we've talked about, are there any kind of smaller steps that could be taken in terms of starting to push back against some of these things? Basically, the NHS is this great collectivist idea of how we ensure that everybody's got equal access to healthcare, but it relies upon its supply of medicines and the development of new drugs, unlike the most cutthroat, voracious, hyper-financialized industrial sector in the world in the pharmaceutical industry. And that pharmaceutical industry is making decisions that are not about the best interests of patients or the NHS or public health. They're talking and thinking and acting in a way that maximizes return uh, for their shareholders and maximizes their profits. It's the most profitable industry in the world. Um, and so, so contradicting missions there. Totally contradicting <laughs> missions. And like, you know, um, there are times whenever the desire to increase profit also aligns with improving public health, but more often than not, they don't align. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what we need to do is say, okay, where have we got at the moment within the system existing safeguards that can kind of curb some of the power of the pharmaceutical industry? Um, one microcosm of the problems that we see at the moment is around access to a drug called Orcambi, which is a cystic fibrosis treatment. It's priced by a company called Vertex at £104,000 per patient per year. It's just too expensive for the NHS. Mm-hmm. It's priced at a level that means that kids with cystic fibrosis, and it's mostly kids that would benefit from this drug, are dying without access right now. That drug company 
in theory, the theory behind the system, as I mentioned earlier on, they're supposedly being rewarded for the development of that drug, which they did themselves. But actually, the significant investment came from the public sector. Mm-hmm. It came from the US government. It came from other governments. And it came from charitable contributions to research. And um, so it kind of makes a mockery of the whole theory of how the system should work. And so what we need to do is, first and foremost, use the safeguards that we've got at the moment to ensure access to those drugs. For example... We've got the legal right to suspend a patent if we choose to, to break a monopoly and procure for the NHS an affordably priced generic version of a drug. That's something we used to do in the past. We should do it again. It's still on the books. In the longer term, we need to think about how do we better align the incentives in the innovation model to the best possible outcomes for the NHS and for public health. And that's a bigger picture, long-term mission, but it needs to happen. I wanted to ask what what you think the kind of public support is or isn't for the kind of change that you think needs to happen. The stuff that we've been discussing today, do you think that the public is behind that? And if so, how how might they be mobilised in terms of actually making some change happen? Just generally, like, everybody knows there's a problem with the NHS. Mm-hmm. Everybody. And the majority of people that I talk to, they support it and they support the staff. But on the wider issues, I don't know if that would be so... Mm together and do you think that those people would blame that problem of the nhs on the nhs or on the government both both some people blame the government but some people blame the nhs and talk about how inefficient we are Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. how terrible we are which is what they're fed by by the media as well so it's not really their fault Mm. dear mid final thoughts I mean, I think there's no other subject that cuts across party lines quite like the NHS. Mm -hmm. It's consistently like the top one or two most important political issues that anybody believes is important at any one time in the country. And the belief in the value and the ethos and the structure and the ownership and the delivery of the NHS is like... Everybody knows what they want. They want an equitable, publicly owned, publicly delivered NHS right the way across the board. And that's kind of like whether you're a Tory or a Labour voter or Lib Dem or SNP. And so I think that's almost gives the NHS this pretty unique position within UK politics and culture. And I think we've got a bit of a job to do to essentially make some of our political leaders better held to account of what the public wants. And I think a lot of the things that need to change are the public's ahead of the politicians on this. They understand what needs to happen in terms of a reinvestment in the number of nurses and a a fair deal for them in terms of their wages and their access to education. Um, And they understand what we need to do in terms of public health and and some of the wider drivers of that. So I I think the, the, the support exists out there. I think it's just our job as campaigners and it's politicians' jobs as, as, as leaders to try and translate those into reality. In terms of access to medicines, there is no political issue where you can read the comments on a Daily Mail article and read the comments on a Guardian article mm-hmm. and the, those comments are completely aligned and that happens every time you see criticism of a pharmaceutical company overcharging in an unjustified way for their medicines. And so I think we've got a real opportunity there as well to push for reform of an industry that's supposed to serve the public good and frankly at the moment is serving the stakeholder good only or the shareholder good only. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
Um, a massive thank you to all of you for joining me this week on the Week Economics podcast. Daniel Button from the New Economics Foundation, Diarmid McDonald from Just Treatment, and I think it's fair because we've got a nurse in the room to give an especially big thanks to Danielle um, for all the amazing work that you do. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. You can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. Our producer really particularly appreciated the music criticism last week, so keep it coming. Uh, there's been a really lively debate about last week's episode on Lexit versus Remain and Reform, so also keep that going. Um, keep the comments coming, and who knows, we might even talk about them on a future episode just like that. The Weekly Economics podcast is produced by James Shield with help from Fergal O'Dwyer and Flory Burton this week and we're brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you next week. Bow, bow, bow.